Okay, this is another edition of Musical Explorations. This week, we're going to listen to the music of American composer and founder of minimalism, Lamont Young. excerpt was from uh, Lamont Young, Pre-Tortoise Dream Music, and that was recorded in 1964 by Lamont Young, actually recorded it with a, with a thing that he called the Theater of Eternal Music. And as you see in Young, uh, different from other composers that we've listened to, maybe uh, uh, Harry Parch in that sense, but Lamont Young's music and style had one unifying element from beginning to end, and that was the drone and the idea of, of drone music in India. Um, and he started that very early. We'll hear from an early piece that he wrote that he's very much influenced by Asian and Indian, especially, philosophies. In fact, he studied with uh, uh, Pandit Pranath, a famous uh, Indian singer. He actually lived with him and did his laundry and all that type of stuff. But we know he's the founder considered the founding father of minimalism, and that's the school where you take the least amount of materials and you make the most with them. Uh, that's one of the definitions of minimalism. And we have from that, supposedly, we have people like uh, Terry Riley, uh, Stephen Reich, Philip Glass, John Adams are all proponents of the minimalist school. And uh, they've done different things with it, but this supposedly, now we're looking at the, the as you would say in, in, in scholarly circles, the Ur-text, the original text, the original guy who came up with minimalism. Okay, Lamont Young was called avant-garde. It means advanced guard or vanguard is a French term. And, and he probably would have not liked it. He would have hated the, that identification with anything military. Um, it means that uh, somebody in art and music who is looking towards the future, I don't know what that means. If composers compose and they compose with ideas. Does that mean they're looking towards the future or... Uh, we don't. We, I can't categorize things that way, but uh, there are people that do. Uh, but what is he? He is a composer, obviously. He's an avant-garde artist. He's a conceptual artist, much like John Cage. And he is a musician. In fact, he played. He was a very good saxophone player and played with lots of jazz groups and uh, played in lots of his uh, his own music. He is the founder of minimalism. Now, minimalism is a school, as defined, that uses the smallest amount of materials to the maximum uh, extent that they can be used. It, it's basically been typified by endless repetition, endless hours of repetition, and, and uh, repetition to the point where people drives people crazy. They, don't, they can't stand it. But that school of minimalism is, uh, he is the founding father. We can debate whether that will be a major event musically and historically or, a, or a, a blip in the radar. We don't know. So let's see what this guy is all about. Uh, Young was born October 1935. 
So that would that makes him 79. He's a living composer. And I actually called him and um, uh, I tried I'm trying to get an interview set up with him, but I don't. Uh, we couldn't do it in time for this show. So uh, he was born in Bern, Idaho. Well, it shows you can come from any place. It doesn't matter. Composers are composers. Uh, at the height of the Depression, 1935, and people were poor. Well, his dad was out moving around, trying to find uh, uh, work, of course, so they moved quite a lot. Uh, and, um, you know, it was a very tough time. I mean, Parch, we know, became a hobo in 35. And uh, Young was born. Did he know Harry Parch? He met him later, uh, and they had some interactions. He was a Mormon, raised as a Mormon. Uh, up in that area of Idaho, uh, northern, um, uh, northern Nevada, Idaho, parts of Montana, over into uh, some parts even of Washington and even into Oregon and those areas up there. That's pretty much Mormon territory. If you're living up there, you're vastly influenced by the Mormons. In fact, if you go to a hotel in many of those towns in in, uh, Idaho, they'll they'll have things like the church or the temple view room or the uh, the, the, something relating to Mormonism, and they're they're situated in such a way that uh, I guess people that come in from out of out of the town can have a comfort in in looking at their uh, uh, the Moroni little statue of Moroni up on their on the top of their spire up there, and then they moved to uh, at, well, finally they end up in uh, Los Angeles. He still was raised as a Mormon. He was raised up in the Los Feliz area. There's no reports that he did any of the Mormon missionary things or anything like that. Uh, he, he probably had a relationship with Mormonism like most people have with their religion. They're, they're, they're born and they go to church a little bit. They might go for the major holidays, uh, and then that's the end of that. They don't, they don't have a, a real living, working relationship with their church. Some people do, but most, most Americans don't. He attended Marshall High. And that, of course, that was in the Los Feliz area there. And he uh, listed as a distinguished or notable graduate. Uh, the people do recognize uh, the stuff that he did. But also with that uh, there is uh, uh, Lance Ito, who, of course, presided over the uh, OJ trial. Uh, Heidi Fleiss, a woman of prostitutorial fame, I guess we should say, uh, started her... Um, own uh, own own little uh, escort service there and, and made quite a lot of money and, and still is, is doing stuff. Smart lady. Uh, Michelle Phillips, Mamas and Papas. She was the, the cute one in the Mamas and Papas, not, not uh, Cass, who was a little bigger. And um, uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he also was uh, from that school. And Julie Newmar. And we know Julie Newmar, of course, because in the original... Batman series, she was uh, the cat woman, big, big woman, very smart lady, very bright. Uh, then he went to Los Angeles City College, graduated. We don't know what he studied. Uh, we know he played saxophone, uh, and his, his obviously, remember, people got lessons back in those days if they could afford it at all. But he learned how to play saxophone and, and piano to a degree, and he actually got some gigs with some jazz people. He played with some pretty good guys. He played with Arnett Coleman, Don Cherry, and uh, and some, several others. I mean, he was was a good guy. He could gig around town and, and, and show up at late night places, and he's uh, just a kid. Um, well, things were a little bit different. People were, were not so hidebound in many ways in those days. People had, wanted more freedom, and they, they actually demanded more, and they kids had more uh, more opportunities in, in some ways. Now we kind of lock kids in and we're all so paranoid. And hey, 
what kind of a person has playtime? We have playtime for our pets, and we're going to have playtime for our kids, and we're going to have this as if kids aren't spontaneous and just go off and try to order them into some kind of stupid uh, regimen that, that, that is unhuman in a way. You know? Oh, the mother, I have to run. I have a, a hair appointment. I've got to go here. i got to go there. have to get everything done. I'm a, I'm a multifaceted. I do everything terribly, but I, I think I'm doing it good. Anyway, so the mid-50s, he's playing all these jazz scenes and uh, does that. No, the 50s and 60s was in L.A. was a golden era. Shelly Mann, the, the drummer, uh, famous drummer, had a place called The Manhole down in Hollywood. You could actually go in there underage. I used to go in there with a friend of mine. And, um, and Dante's was, was flourishing out in, uh, in the San Fernando Valley. There was the, the Golden Horn was a place out in Pasadena. There was the Blue Note was down in the Vermont area. And you could go to those places and jam with guys. It was uh, different. It, in, in reality, it was the only interaction you ever had with people of other races because blacks were big into jazz at that time and still are. And, uh, and a, a big art form and great musicians down there. And, you, and you'd beat all these different kind of guys. It was very interesting. But you wouldn't do that out in normal life. Uh, unless you were a musician and working with musicians, you wouldn't necessarily, the integration wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was, a, it was segregation was the way things were going. The Jews could only live in certain areas of L.A. Los Feliz area was one they could live in. Finally, the FHA, of course, came in with programs once they started after the Korean War, and they broke all those red lines. They used to call them red lines. They couldn't live here. But still, blacks had a very difficult time moving into certain areas. It was, wasn't, wasn't uh, the, the, as, as easy as it is now, and still it's difficult. So anyway, he went uh, um, he was uh, there, and he went to UCLA. Uh, we all know what he studied at UCLA, uh, but he did get a B.A., in whatever discipline he did. And then he uh, went up to UC Berkeley and uh, stayed up there till 1960. So about 59, 60. In 59, he took this chance. They had these, used to have this program where you could go study, and uh, we, we have it to this day, but they had arts transfer programs. And he went to Darmstadt, and he wanted to take this summer school class. This is in the summer with uh, uh, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. And he did. He went off. And, uh, and, and went and studied with Karl Heinz Stockhausen in Darmstadt. And then uh, when he came back, he didn't go back to uh, Berkeley. He went to New York, and he w wanted to study electronic music because Stockhausen at that time was, was, the, was the, the big maestro of electronic music. He'd written this uh, electronic piece called Song of the Youth. Anyway, off he is in New York, uh, and he's studying... Uh, um, He'd studied with Stockhausen, and then his music at that time tended to be real short pieces and very structured. And I'll just I'll talk about what indeterminacy and determinacy and uh, total serialism is a little bit later. We do have something that he wrote from that time, uh, and I, we want to hear it. It's for a string quartet. It's a uh, five very short pieces for string quartet. So let's hear what his ideas were sounding like at that time.
Okay, that's an excerpt from Five Small Pieces for String Quartet. He called it on remembering a naiad. So it had some kind of programmatic elements called a wisp, a gnarl, a leaf, a twig, a tooth. What we heard was some from a wisp. But I, uh, the piece is all pretty similar. Now, the composure that this most sounds like is Anton Weber. Pieces are very short, uh, some use of effects, and a kind of a dreamy quality he's trying to create. So that's what he's doing. Remember, when Young was at UCLA, he studied with Leonard Stein. And Leonard Stein was Schoenberg's assistant when Schoenberg taught at the school. So he would have been well-versed in the, in the music of uh, Anton Weber and Alban Berg. So uh, he uh, obviously used the, uh, uh, the influence of, of Weber. Okay, we know he studied with Leonard Stein. So Leonard Stein would have certainly exposed him to the music of Schoenberg, if that's all he would have talked about, and, and Weber and, and, uh, and, and, and Berg, Alban Berg. And uh, uh, these pieces sound very much like Anton Weber, and as I said, they're, just, they're, they're short, they're uh, small little pieces, they're expressions almost. Uh, when Stravinsky heard them, he called them little gems. Now, uh, he's talking about Weber's works. Uh, Stravinsky never really had anything to do with, with Lamont Young and wouldn't have spent two minutes with him. But the uh, idea uh, that he's following here, though, quickly dissolved. Uh, I, we have a piece from 1957, a, a brass piece. And now listen, this is one year later. He's not gone to Europe yet, but this is what he's doing one year later, 66 to 56 to 57. That's a 1957 work. It's called Four Brass. Uh, hard to even discern that that's brass. And what it basically does is phase brass instruments in and out um, uh, in a sequence, kind of a, a randomized sequence, I guess. Anyway, let's go to the end and hear what the end of the piece sounds like. The whole piece is about 40-some minutes long. That was 1957. Of course, as I said, he's still working today. He's 79 and uh, lives in New York. Um, and he can be called. You can uh, get his phone number and you can uh, get his email. You can call him and talk to him if you want. Uh, but he's a California boy. and uh, But interestingly, he did not discover uh, uh, Cowell and the California movement and John Cage and all that stuff until he went to 59 and to Darmstadt when he studied at the Stockhausen School because that's where Cage was. He was there. And um, 
He he actually uh, stock uh, John Cage actually worked his uh, lifelong with this guy named David Tudor as a pianist and worked with John Cage a lot on the prepared piano and other things and premiered a lot of Cage's works. And uh, uh, Young uh, had a friendship, got a, a very strong friendship going with uh, uh, Tudor. And uh, in fact, they even uh, swapped works back and forth. Tudor would send uh, um, Cage's works to uh, Lamont Young, and he would put them on. And Young would send works to John Cage or to Tudor, and they would put concerts on with John Cage, and they would present uh, Lamont Young's work. So he was very soon tied in with with the Avant. Was as you say, the Avant Guard. Even though I don't think either person would have liked the term, uh, kind of got together very fast and they understood each other's uh, interests in the fact that they were doing something quite different. By this time, Young uh, had completely shed the discipline of Western music. He, he now is, in fact, he even uh, came out and uh, attacked Carl uh, Heinz Stockhausen as an institutional composer and, and, a, and a traitor to art. It was really something. It was, it was quite interesting. Like I said, uh, Schoenberg and Stravinsky had a dust-up, and, and this happens with composers all the time. Maybe it's jealousy, maybe it isn't. But he had now, uh, instead of, remember, he was initially schooled by Leonard Stein in the, in the Schoenberg Institute of Serialism, Serialism and uh, Serial Techniques, 12-tone writing, very abstract, disjointed writing, and, uh, and now he's rejected all that, and he's accepting this whole indeterminacy thing and this whole idea of, of, uh, of, of Indian, the, the, the evolving of Indian philosophies and, and gurus and that type of stuff. Remember, this is the 1960s. Even the Beatles were influenced by it, so uh, all of them. Uh, were, this was such a powerful movement coming out of, of, of India and our acceptance of it was a Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was around. Yogananda Paramahansa had, but of course he was in the in the twenties. But he had the Self Realization Fellowship. There were a lot of Theosophists around. There was a, a big movement centered in California, primarily of all this now Eastern way of thinking. It's a very uh, kind of live and let live way of thinking. I found it mostly by precepts of Buddhist uh, Buddhism. Gautama Siddhartha. Anyway, <clears throat> off we go. Uh, what is serialism? Let's take a look at what serialism is and, and what indeterminacy is, because in order to understand this whole indeterminate concept, you kind of have to understand where music was. Music, uh, with Arnold Schoenberg, Schoenberg said, look, we're going to, instead of writing music that uses little melodies and then we'll harmonize the melodies and things like that, what we're going to do is I'm going to make a different way of making music. I'm going to make what they call a tone row. Now, composers have used germs, melodic germs and tone rows and things for quite some time, but never with all 12 tones. There is some uh, evidence that, that Liszt might have done a, a, a melodic sequence that was 12 tones. Uh, it's, one of, it's in one of the later etudes. Uh, but he didn't use it in the same sense. Yeah, they were all there, but he was modulating through, uh, through all the whole key range of, of each of those, those tones, how it worked out. Uh, in 12 tone, it doesn't work the same way. 12 tone is you have 12 tones of our chromatic scale put into an order that isn't the same as an order, a sequential order, but it's a different sequence, right? And then out of that, you build harmonies and you build other other elements, musical elements. Okay. 
Uh, towards the end of Schoenberg's career and with the advent of Arnold, uh, Anton Webern and, and, uh, and the, some of the works of Stein and other people and uh, uh, George Rochberg and people like that, what we ended up having happen was they said, well, why do we have to just order the row of notes? Why don't we order dynamics? So they took a, made a table of dynamics and they would, they would randomly use these dynamics in the pieces along with the notes. And we got into a position where uh, other guys were saying, well, look, we, we have dynamics. What about texture? What about density, note density, one through 12, right? You could have these numbers and each, each number represented the number of notes that you would have in the, in the chord. So, okay, here's some examples. Now, if I take the chromatic scale between C and C and I play the notes, We have 12 notes in there, right? Back to C is the 13th. If I go across here and I take those same notes, but reorder them, but I use all those same 12 notes, I have, I have this. Okay, now as I'm using this, if I want to make a harmony, I could do it a number of different ways. Let's just say I take the first four notes, a C, F, a C, an F, a G sharp, and an E. And I have that. Okay, that's a harmony I would use. And this is a dissonant harmony. And that's why a lot of people have a difficult time with this kind of music because it doesn't seem to have anything they can relate to. And the next four notes, of course, are an A flat or an A sharp a G, an F sharp, and a D. That. Now, it's hardly traditional harmony, although it has roots in traditional harmony. So, we have those tone rules. So, if I'm writing a melody, I might write a melody that, uh, that uses elements of those different notes, and I can also use that row backwards. I can use it inverted. I could have any interval that goes up. Instead of the C going up to an F like this, I can have it go down to a G. It's the same space, same number of, of intervals, okay? That is called serialism. I have serialized the notes. Now, you could do the same thing with dynamics. I can take the range of dynamics from uh, quadruple forte up to pianissimo, uh, five pianos like uh, we're using uh, Tchaikovsky, and I can order those in a sequence, a random sequence, so I could end up playing... Uh, my little tone row here, uh, just the first four notes, C, F, G sharp, and E, I could go. So I have a loud, quiet, loud, quiet, or I could do them differently. I could do that way. I could do it any number of way, but I have to have it in a table, and I have to use them according to how they come up in the table. I've, put, I've made a table of all these things. Then I can do it with density. I can say, okay, uh, one through 12, right? Because we have 12 notes. I can have a density of the first time we hear the iteration of this, uh, it's one. So I can play along one for a while. So I hear, and then I want two. So the next two notes I would hit are, and that's the next two notes. And then the next two notes is, and then back to the C sharp, which is ends the sequence, one, and I could go to five. So I end up having uh, a note like this. 
that would be the next five. And I could actually end up going with all 12 if I wanted. But I, as I would put these in a table, I would hit that density and I would use it as I'm writing these notes. So I would be writing along my notes and then I would be using dynamics and I would then also be using this density. Duration, another one. We have quarter notes. Uh, we'll say we're just in 4-4 four, four, and I'm tapping out one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. I have eighth notes. I have sixteenth notes. Okay. I have all those different things that I'm using, but I can I can serialize that duration so I can have And all done by using these tables. And I would use it over and over and over again as I write through the piece. And I can, then I can alter it. I can make other tables. I can make tables that are the opposite of, uh, if it starts with piano, I could start with a forte. This is called total serialism. Now, an interesting phenomenon takes place. When you write pieces that are totally serial, totally controlled, every dynamic element is controlled, all the durations are controlled, they're all in charts, you put all this stuff together, it is very difficult to tell it from completely improvised music. The reason is, is that sometimes in improvisation you can do very strange things that have no relation similar to the way these serial things work. Now, so I could end up playing in a totally improvised. And still use the same notes, same sequence of notes, but just make stuff up and put them in there at different dynamics, different rhythms. It's very difficult to tell total serialism from total improvised lack of control music. So what ended up happening was Cage and other people came up with this idea of, well, what difference does it make? What you use at what time? If, if, if total control of something is going to sound exactly the same as total uh, non-control, well, why don't we opt for total non-control? In the process of that, they started looking at other music. And Young, amongst them, started looking at Indian music and Indian drone music. And that is where this idea of indeterminacy, in other words, it doesn't necessarily matter which event happens where. The fact is that the event does happen in a sequence, and that sequence can be anything. Young took some pieces as little as four or five notes. If you heard those drone pieces, that's what they are. Long extended drone pieces with just every once in a while a note would come in and a note would go up, but there's only a few notes. There's no uh, uh, like bebop jazz style. There's none of that stuff that goes on in the thing. So there's a difference between serialism and indeterminacy. Now you get the idea that the indeterminate means that there's indeterminate elements that can happen any time. And, but it ends up sounding very much like total control. So an interesting phenomenon. Now that you know a little bit about what dro drove him and the type of forces that he was working with, let's go back to his life. Early 60s, and Young permanently moves to New York. Yeah, he's a California boy, but he finds the, the, the culture in New York much more invigorating and much more interesting. And um, he comes in with some kind of fanfare. I mean, he's now this new guy. He's got this whole idea of indeterminacy from, from Cage, and he's taking it and mixed it kind of with Indian music and, 
and he's kind of this like this new guy, this new enfant terrible, shall we say. And uh, so he got really kind of plugged into the anti-music, anti-art, uh, that whole uh, disassociation scene that was going on in New York where everything was getting pulled apart. Now, this was the early days. This deconstruction hadn't happened yet. Derrida hadn't written his magnus opus. He wrote that sometime in 67 or 68, something like that. Might have even been a little bit later. But he hadn't written his, uh, uh, his idea, the whole deconstruction idea. But people were, uh, this was the 60s. Remember, people were questioning everything. They were pulling everything apart and putting it back together and looking at things differently and questioning the nature of what we accepted as art and music. They were, they were changing. So, uh, like I said, uh, Dorita didn't publish, uh, it's called Grammatology. It was 67. So, um, we, we about the idea of hold the deconstruction of, of natural forms. Well, the artists had been doing that for quite a long time. Now, they had started much earlier, as you can hear, with some of the stuff that Cowell was doing and some of the stuff that Harrison was doing. And art tends to precede philosophy by about 10 years. Painting... Uh, tends to precede music by about 10 years. And, uh, and cinema, I don't know where it fits in there, but uh, it, it tends to, to painters t and dancers tend to be the most uh, forward-looking of the, of the arts, and musicians tend to be a little stodgy, so it takes them, it takes them some extra time. About 10 years, uh, even with our rapid uh, uh, communications this way. So uh, Young was, of course, loved this stuff in New York. He was absolutely said, man, this is where it's happening. We're, we're, we're going to destroy everything and create a new world here. And he, he found this group called Flexus. Uh, Flexus was founded by this guy called uh, George Masunius. Now, George Masunius is a real character. He is a really great promoter. This guy can promote anything. And uh, he's come up with this thing about Flexus where there's now no artist is not, the artist is not important. The collaboration is important. And he came up with this idea of these uh, uh, dream boxes or art boxes that would have all kinds of crazy stuff in them that you would do, like participatory art, uh, plastic art in such a way. And he also put on uh, uh, performances, stuff like that. Well, <clears throat> Young says, I got to find a way to make some cash here because I don't, I'm not, making much money here. No, and he didn't turn to janitorial work, as others have done. Uh, he wrote a book, and uh, uh, like, like Cowell. Cowell wrote a book, and uh, other people have written books, but he wrote a book called The Anthology of Chance Operations. And this was public. Uh, it was actually designed, the book design and all the thing was put together by a Masunia, so uh, it's kind of cool. If you can find one of these things today, if you go to a garage sale and you ever see one, grab it. They're worth about 400 bucks a copy if you can find a first edition. There have been other ones put out on the internet uh, with, um, uh, that have been PDF'd and things like that. But uh, in, in reality, a, a copy of that book is nothing but money. So and it's also an interesting read because he kind of codifies all this idea of chance and indeterminacy and that type of stuff, some of which even included rolling dice. But then again, Mozart rolled dice uh, to make music. So it's not that... Uh, uh, much of a deal. Jung adopted all these indeterminate ideas, and they were based on Cage's kind of ideas. So here's what, he, here's what Cage said about that. Cage said, the process of the work, if that you're doing, is just as important as the realization. So when you come up 
with a concept. The concept of the work is, just, is, is as important as the performance of the work. And sometimes in Cage's w world, as we saw with uh, uh, some of Cage's works, that the concept was actually better than the work. So, I mean, interestingly enough, great concept, great idea, the putting it together with all the, uh, the different uh, elements that he used, very interesting. But they're more conceptual than they are actual. So they're not notated down. A series of events are given. And Young loved this idea. He didn't have to write notes anymore. He knew from the jazz world how to write notes. He certainly could play. So he adopted this indeterminacy with just went crazy for it and, and really loved it. For example, if the process is more important than the work, he had actions that were carried out. One of his pieces, he had light a fire on stage. Another one, he had draw a line and follow it. Draw a straight line and follow it. Um, uh, look at your instrument funny. Do things like that. There is a movie uh, put out. Uh, it's called um, uh, The Mozart Brothers, in which they, they hire an enfant terrible uh, uh, opera director to go into a, a Swedish town and put on this opera, put on Don Giovanni. And he does all these crazy things with the, with the orchestra. He has the, uh, the orchestra members making love to their instruments and, and, um, and, and pouring syrup all over themselves and doing all these crazy art events to get them into this psychology to be able to play this Don Giovanni piece and then the stater actors do everything and the, and the rebellion that he has with the thing. So there's no uh, indication in Young's works uh, how these lines should be drawn or anything like that, or how the action should be done or any time with them. His pieces were indeterminate and linked. You could perform them until you didn't want to perform them anymore. I mean, that was his, his idea. These, these instructions are basically useless if you're not performing the work. If you're recording the work, who cares whether light a fire on stage? I mean, how are you going to transfer that? Draw a straight line and follow it, or, or look at your instrument funny, or do... You know, it's just not... not uh, 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 attractive. But he's putting on these concerts and he's got these ideas. So who does he run into in New York? Yoko Ono. Yoko Ono has got this loft. She's wealthy. She has a lot of money. Her family's wealthy and she's a trust baby. And she's a performance artist and conceptual artist. She's also found Cage's ideas uh, attractive. So she puts on these concerts, series of concerts, in uh, her loft in New York. And uh, this is about the time that, that uh, Young, Young actually curated them. He actually found people to come and perform in these places, and there's recordings done there. Uh, they're all same, pretty similar, this drony kind of stuff. But this is when Young developed this concept of the tortoise. The tortoise and his many journeys. And that became the, 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 the root of the type of things that he would do for the rest of his life as far as music was concerned. So let's take a look, a listen to what this tortoise stuff sounds like, and we'll see if there what we can make of it.
and the piece goes on and on like that. So um, it's an it's an it's an interesting idea there in spatial time and the idea of of time and resources that you use. Okay, so 1962, Young writes this thing called the second dream of the high-tension step-down transformer. And I've got an example of that, so let's listen to it. Now, this goes on like this for some nine minutes. Now, interestingly, this is a part of a larger set. There's a big set he has. It's called The Four Dreams of China. And this kind of uh, was part of what he was doing in, in, uh, in the whole tortoise thing, uh, the whole idea of the tortoise. Uh, and he based this entire work on four pitches, okay? Um, and I'm going to try and play them, but I can't because one of them is a just intonation pitch. But they are basically a G a C, a C-sharp, and there is a pitch, another pitch in there, which is a little sharper than an actual C-sharp and a D. It's like right in here. It's right in there. It's a, it's a funny kind of pitch that's in there. Now, these Chinese pieces are worked out as follows. The four pitches are worked out and played together. Other designated pitches are provided for improvisation. So what the other pitches are, we don't know, but they we don't really hear them because it just kind of drones on and on and on like this. It takes a very long time to do this. The piece supposedly extends out for a number of hours if you were to play it uh, the way he wanted it. Now, why is it important? Why, why is this important? It's because this piece and this idea gave rise to Jung's concept called the dream house. Now, the dream house is where musicians would live and work and eat and sleep and do all this stuff, and they would play music in shifts 24 hours a day. So they would play like an eight-hour shift, then they'd go to the other part of the house, they'd cook some food, they would eat, they would sleep, they would do whatever, uh, get up in the next morning and they would go down to the performing place and they would do their shift and uh, playing the instrument. They were supposed to go on for as long as, I guess, as people could do it. You could do one of these things for months, I guess, if you could get it funded and, and musicians didn't kill you, uh, depending on what the music was. And if it was just this drone music going on all the time, um, you could probably get uh, uh, some interesting stuff. Now, Musicians subbed in and subbed out. That had been done a lot uh, in the past. There's some historical references uh, that Galileo, uh, uh, the son of the, uh, the, the Galileo, the guy who uh, uh, had the fight with the Pope and all that about the, the earth revolving around the sun and all that stuff, and uh, the Ptolemy, the, the fight between the Ptolemy look at the universe and, and the Galilean look, 
had a father who was a composer, and his father composed uh, uh, wonderful performances inside of uh, houses made out of pastries. And he would put the musicians inside these houses. They'd be carried in, and they would be playing inside these houses. And then the guests would descend on the house, and they'd eat all the pastry, exposing the, the musicians. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci did some huge uh, contraptions, uh, mechanical contraptions, and musicians would be on little platforms, and these platforms would move around, and the music would then come into to the presence of whoever was listening to the, the, the piece and watching the thing move, and they would go up and down and all around and make these big mechanical contraptions. So we've had people doing these kind of things before in the past. But, uh, but Young had this dream house uh, and this idea, and, uh, and he wanted to get it performed. So he couldn't just go out and hire a bunch of union musicians because they're not going to get involved with this at all. They have strict hours, and the page has to be a certain way and all that. Now, so what he did was he formed his own little group. It was called the Theater of Eternal Music. And he, he got all these musicians and people that he worked with in Plexus, founded by uh, Masunius, and, um, and the Yoko Ono loft concerts. He, he met people through that, and he, he got all these people. Now, it's hard to know how many works Lamont Young really wrote. And the reason is this. He, he often would restage performances. If you take a look at his his resume, and you look at his list of works, there's thousands of works. But a lot of them are the same turtle and his journeys, the same drone kind of music, but done in different settings with different people and different instruments, and he just called that a new work uh, or changed the title in some way. So you don't know that he's writing all these uh, uh, original works, right? So the other thing that he did about the same time, a little bit after this, but he's writing this thing called The Tortoise Recalling the Drone of the Holy Numbers as they were revealed in the dreams of the whirlwind and the obsidian gong illuminated by the sawmill, the green sawtooth ocelot, and the high-tension line step-down transformer. Now that's quite a mouthful. Now let's see if we have I do have an excerpt of that, and let's take a look at what it, or take a listen to what it sounds like. certainly gets an A for consistency. So, the, the, the piece actually goes on like, I could play the end of it, but it's the same exact sound through the, the piece. And this is his concept. You know? I would think it would be very hard to get people to listen to this in a real musical sense because you almost have to be stoned or mentally transformed. I mean, you would have to be some kind of alternative uh, state, I would think, to uh, uh, 
get this. Okay. Remember, though, this is still, this is the 1960s, and everything was being uh, expanded out. Everybody was questioning everything, you know, everything. And Indian music was huge. Even the Beatles were doing Indian music. Everybody, the Maharishi was there, and it was just unbelievable. So uh, he went and studied, uh, actually, in the, uh, in the 70s, uh, he, took, he really studied uh, Asian classical music, Indian classical music. He went and studied with this guy, Pandit Pranath. He's a singer, Indian singer, and he went and lived with him. For 26 years, he lived with the guy in New York, became, washed his laundry and did all that stuff and you know, made him food. And basically, in this concept, they have a kind of a, a guru. It's called, um, oh, what was that called? It's like... Uh, where a, a person goes and lives under the study of a guru to learn the discipline and you become their basic, their servant. It's, I, I forget the name and how it's called. But. All right, so uh, Young was really taken with this stuff. And he, uh, Terry Riley actually was involved with this guy too and came and studied with him. I'm going to do a show on, on Terry Riley. And um, uh, Young met also at this time Marian Zarzila. Zazila was a performance artist and actually helped stage the, uh, uh, the dream house concepts and did a lot of, of music and other things with him. It was very interesting. But they were together. They lived with him for 26 years. I, uh, so what kind of music did they produce? Let's listen. This is Pandit Pranath, Lamont Young, Marion Zazila, and Terry Riley. Let's jump up to 1987. Uh, that's a historical recording. If you ever can find one, buy it. They're very rare. Lamont Young worked on this magnus opus called the Well-Tuned Piano, and he considered it his greatest work and his culmination of his life's work. It uh, was issued on five CDs, and uh, uh, he wrote it, like I said, 1987. So he, let's see... He also fell into the prepared piano like John Cage. Not this, not prepared the same, but tuned differently. It was a just intonation type of tuning. And he retuned the whole piano as a Boisendorfer, and now it sits in the Guggenheim uh, Museum. So let's take a listen to what this sounds like. And I'm going to play a little bit longer excerpt from this because there's quite a lot of it.
Now there's five CDs of the well-tuned piano. Each CD is a little bit different, but they all start the same, uh, kind of slow, and then they get a, a, a part where they're much more active, and then they, they get uh, slow again, and they use different combination of notes and different combinations of, of things. Now this is minimalism. But remember, this is 1987, so we've had other minimalist works before this, so his concepts kind of preceded what he was doing with this album. Now, I want to play one more thing, and this is from a Trio for Strings. Now, Lamont Young actually wrote this first way back in the early 50s, and then he redid it again sometime in the 70s. He redid it again in the 90s, and then he redid it again in 2003. So let's take a listen to what he was doing with this string trio. Declared an independence of Piano and founding chairman of Moro National Liberation Front of Evangelista Nur Miswari. Okay, now, in order to really understand what he's doing here, this is a later piece. It's a visual piece. There's a film going on, there's some string players playing, and there's a bunch of newscasts talking about the formation of a country, and then the first thing is about a flag, and it talks about there's little graphics and little words, uh, kind of like a silent movie, but it's actually all defined around this country uh, um, in this place called uh, Mindanao, 
uh, in, in the Philippines, and they're trying to establish their own country, and then the reaction of the government against it and that type of stuff. The piece is about four and a half minutes long, but it's, it's still the drone things with all the other stuff. Now, the dream house is an interesting concept, and, and uh, there was a time uh, before I ever was, was experienced with Lamont Young or anything like that when I actually designed a, a piece called Uthant's uh, Dream, which is a, a place you go into, and, and when Uthant was Secretary General of the United Nations, he had a room built in the UN, which was a big rock of granite, and it was lit in a dark black room, and it was uh, lit behind with just a little light that shined on the light. So you could never see the light. You just see the shadow and the rock and that type of stuff. And he went to go in there and meditate. And I did the same thing with sound effects and all kinds of stuff going through a sound system called biphonics. But uh, I'll try to put it on up here sometime. Uh, as, and you, you have to run it for months and months and people walk into it. It's very interesting. All right, so we've listened now to the music of Lamont Young. We've seen him go from his early days. We knew Serial, remember? He was working with uh, uh, Leonard Stein, and he had actually studied with Schoenberg, and he was in that school. And then he had a break. Right about the same uh, time he was studying and up at Berkeley, he had a break, and he adopted this whole idea of Indian music and uh, Indian philosophies and that whole idea of mu uh, Indian uh, musical practice, long, long pieces and uh, long uh, extended drones, which is uh, through every Indian uh, piece of music. You hear this one thing of and then you hear people were playing the sitar, I mean, it means three strings over the, the drone. And, uh, and Ravi Shankar, of course, and the Beatles did it here and other people have off and on uh, play with Indian music. And he expanded this up into a point where he then had another transformation. And he said, well, we can make music just using the smallest possible amount of resources. Started the school of minimalism. He's important. He's a, not that you have to like his music or you can listen to drone music until the cows come home. You're not going to get any more edified. But it is important. And it's important music. Next, I think I'm going to do Terry Riley. And... Uh, that's it for our look at Lamont Young, the father of minimalism. My name is Ted Peterson, and this has been Musical Explorations. <laughs>